setting up the gospel, setting up the context, um, getting the right people in place, um, where we leave the Old Testament in Malachi, we are told, told that John will come and set, set the way, and we see that, obviously, in chapter 1. And then we're told about how, um, obviously, he will lead the way to the Lamb of God. And now we've seen, obviously, his birth. And, and where we come to today in Luke um, chapter 2, 21 to 52, is kind of, again, a unique part to Luke's gospel, which is expanding his early life. You know, we, you know no one really captures... Um, what happens in Jesus' early life, and we get a little glimpse of what he might have been like as a child. And so, um, other than beyond this, it was, everything is mere speculation, you know. Was Jesus the perfect child, always kind of getting beaten up on the streets of Galilee? Do you know what I mean? You kind of get that, you know, the goody two-shoes. Um, we don't know. We really don't know. But we got a glimpse that from the very early on in life, people knew, at least even had a glimpse that he was not going to be a mere normal child. I want to start with um, this whole idea of, you know, people seeing a glimpse of other people's brilliance. And um, I want to start with a little story about Beethoven and Mozart. Taking this excerpt from Capital F, um, Classic FM. And it says this, in 1787, when Beethoven was 17 years of age, he left Bonn on six months leave of absence from the court orchestra and arrived in Vienna a month later. Armed with a letter of introduction from Max Franz, whom Mozart knew, he gained entry into Mozart's home and was ushered into the music room to meet his great idol. Mozart was in no mood to receive him. His health was plaguing him. His un untimely death at the age of 35 was less than five years away. And he did not relish having to stop work to listen to a child prodigy from somewhere hundreds of miles away. Play something, he told Beethoven. Beethoven played the opening of Mozart's piano concerto number 24 in C minor. Not that, said Mozart. Anybody can play that. Play something of your own. So Beethoven did. How did Mozart react? When the young man had finished, Mozart walked into the adjoining room where his wife, Costanza, was entertaining friends. Stanzi, Stanzi, he said, pointing back into the music room. Watch out for that boy. One day, he will give the world something to talk about. You know, people get a sense when other people are going to change the world. And obviously, this meeting that um, happened between Mozart and Beethoven, we could see that, I guess, the world of classical music was in safe hands, as Mozart could see a bit of the future, and he thought, wow. He is going to be somebody. We all think our children are going to be special, don't we? Though we all realize they won't be um, a Beethoven. They won't all be a, a Dyson. They won't all be a Martin Luther King. And sometimes we, we, we only have to wish the best when we think about our own children. Thank you. I remember um, a family dedication a number of years back um, when um, the presiding vicar, for want of trying to obviously be um, as decisive and encompassing as possible when pronouncing the blessing, um, Sung, que sera, sera, much to the, um, the family's chagrin. Um, but without revelation, that's all you can do. If you don't really know, 
You can pray the best and then ultimately say, ultimately, they're in God's hands. But Jesus is not like this. He's not a case or asset where, well, hopefully we wish the best. And he's not merely, you know, another prodigy. He is something quite different. And hopefully as we get through the text today, um, we'll start to see why Luke probably encompasses this part of his early life to say that this is what's to come. That in a sense, the world was being prepared those 30 odd years before Jesus, as it were, arrived on the scene. And Luke makes great care to make sure that the world knew that this was coming. So turn with me to Luke 2. And we're going to read from verse 21, which obviously, as I said, can fall, I guess, depending on which commentator you use, into either um, the first section or the second section. And then we'll read to the end of the chapter. So reading from the ESV. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been, given, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And it came, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to, who, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce for your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanil, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we um, come to your word as, as people expecting, dear Lord, Father, that you will indeed speak and have spoken, Father, to all, dear Lord God, who believe in you. To many, Lord God, these are just printed words on paper without authentication, dear Lord God, without knowing or caring where they are. But, Father, to those who believe, they are the words of life. They are those, dear Lord God, which transmit truths, dear Lord Father, to us today, that we may live by them. Truly, as Moses said, dear Lord God, that not merely that we would live biologically through the food that we eat, but that we would also live spiritually by the words in which we take in, the truths in which we try to inculcate into our lives. So, Lord, now as we come, we, we, we feast upon your word with the expectation, dear Lord God, that we will gain life from it, dear Lord God, understanding, and that, Lord God, doubts will be taken away. So, Lord, indeed, speak to your church, we pray, by your word and by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So, so one of the things that, about this text is, um, is that maybe these are a couple of events that have been merged into one. So one of the thing, two of the things that I mentioned there was the purification of Mary. So the purification of Mary would have taken part um, 40 days or 30 days after um, Mary had obviously given birth, and it was her way of, in a sense, being cleansed by, um, by the priest in order to kind of re-engage in, in normal life again. And so that she would be, you know, obviously because of the blood, you know, at childbirth and whatnot. And the other one is, is the redemption of the firstborn that Moses again commanded that every firstborn child that opens the womb, you know, you have to pay a payment of redemption to them. And so that's one of the things that you're seeing. So maybe it's not helpful to think that these were all one event. And then, you know, at, at this particular going to the temple, you know, Mary and Joseph were rushed by Simeon and then eventually by Anna. And it was almost, but maybe again, a couple of, you know, maybe a, a week or so apart from each other. But nonetheless, Luke has decided to, um, to bring them together. But obviously, this doesn't rule out the fact that this could have happened that way, where at one particular, at one particular point, both came. But I think the way it's divided, it might be better to see that these were two separate events, very, very close together, that in a sense mark the significance of Jesus' birth. So let's start with that. So she completes her purification. And again, this is one of those ways of showing that Mary and Joseph, and throughout this text, we find that they are good they are good, you know, Jews. They are good Yahwehists in that sense, where they, are, they follow the law of Moses. They are good covenant-keeping parents. So that's the first thing we kind of gain from this text. Looking at 25 to 27, we're now introduced to Simeon. Now, Simeon could be an old man, but he didn't, we, you know, we're not told, and it doesn't really matter. Simeon is presented as a righteous man, but this is a term of him looking forward to the promise of God's redemption. So he is trusting in God. In other words, many people point to, again, chapter 1, and they look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they say, well, he was righteous um, there. And many people today in you know, um, more theological circles argue that this was a, a point that righteousness was attainable through the law. And, and again, as you look at Simeon, and obviously as you look at Anna, you, you think a similar thing. Oh, this is righteousness according to the law, but no. It's because he was looking forward to the righteousness that God will provide. And that's how everyone was righteous. And this is what we know about Abraham and everyone else before that. That righteousness was not a basis that you gained from yourself, even though it was about what we did in our obedience before God. But it was also about the whole idea of looking forward to what God will do. So we see this, obviously, in the, what we call the proto-evangelion, isn't it, where we looked at that last week, 
of, of Genesis 3, the promise that God will provide an, a, an answer to the world's sins. And so this is what people were looking forward to. And we see this theme developing throughout, obviously, the Bible, getting clearer and clearer as we get nearer and nearer to Jesus' birth. So righteousness, in that sense, I believe, is better to be seen in that he was looking forward to, to God. And I think it's meant to what God will do to provide um, salvation for Israel and the world. So the next thing we need to know about this, Simon's me- Simeon's meeting with Jesus and his parents is not a chance meeting. In other words, it wasn't him, you know, maybe going into the temple and then all of a sudden like going, ah, oh, as a special child. I mean, as we would see and, you know, people laying hands on him and saying, oh, you know, bless the child, in a sense, in any kind of, as we might see today. This child is going to be a great warrior for the Lord, you know. No, it seems that he was, in a sense, imbued with the Spirit and, and, and happened to be at the temple because maybe he was led there and was told to be there at this particular time. We know anything about the temple, especially um, on feast times, it could be a, a bit of a hustle and bustle as well. And so there could be lots of stuff going on. And in order for this meeting to happen, it would need to, in a sense, some God providence. So that's what the text tells us, that the Spirit of God is very much involved in this encounter between them. And so Simeon, being filled with the Spirit, goes to the right place at the right time and meets with Mary and Joseph. He's also told that he, he's also told that, we're also told that he, he has a promise, that he would see the consolation of Israel. And it has been... And, and obviously the world as well, not just of Israel, but of the world. So what is the consolation of Israel? Well, it's how we got consoled. And many people point to Isaiah 40, particularly one to two about what it means to be consoled. And it actually starts with that, doesn't it? Reading from verses one to two, it says, Comfort, or console, console my people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, God has provided comfort so that Israel no longer needs to worry about her sins, that they have been resolved with God. So that's what he's looking for. He's looking for that consolation. So in that sense, righteousness is found in what God can provide, not merely the way, not merely by what I provide. What do I bring to the table? And we'll explore that a bit more because obviously we need to maybe not just go through the biblical theology, but do the systematics as well, which is that understanding the doctrines that arise, what we believe as a church, and why it's important that we understand righteousness not from the context that these people fulfilled the law and therefore they were all right, and that Jesus need not, be, need not have been born in that sense. He's just a, he just presides us with a tune-up. But that Jesus actually provides the salvation that they really needed, that their obedience, to some extent, was just looking forward to that which God will provide and not what's actually from themselves. It's important that we understand that. Well, there's no point looking at the birth of Jesus thinking that, yeah, he's just another example of a good man. I said, he's, a, he's not another Beethoven. He's not a Gandhi. He is a unique figure in history. And as I said last week, the very meaning of history, I believe, the very reason why you have a history. So verses 28 to 32, we have what was, you know, in Latin, um, the nuns dimittis, the, 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 the blessing for Israel. And these are the words of Simeon. And the righteousness of Simeon is confirmed to be in his looking forward to the Lord's provision of an answer to the sin as originally revealed in the proto-gospel, as we already mentioned in Genesis 3, that the, the, that the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He is said to be light to the Gentiles. Again, this speaks of revelation. In other words, something new that would come to the Gentiles, a light to the Gentiles. And he will be the glory to Israel, which means, again, the, 
the, the, the summation, everything that, that Israel was being raised up for. So remember that we saw that, that Abraham, who was separated from the rest of the world, now becomes the beginning and the foundation of Israel for the very purpose that the Messiah will be born. In that sense, the glory of Israel is, is found that this is why Israel existed, so that this man, this man-God, can come into existence. And so that's why he, he, he kind of frames it different when it comes to Israel. So this is the expectation that Israel has been looking forward to. And so obviously we see that through Abraham, and then through the selection of Judah, and then through the selection of David, and then the Davidic line, we now have, obviously, Jesus. So that's the glory that we see coming as a manifestation of Israel's purpose, why it exists. It didn't exist merely just to be able to be a people and to to develop its own culture, but in order that Jesus might enter into the world. So verses 33 to 35 now, we have what I call the Marmite effect. It does seem strange that Mary and Joseph are marveled at these statements about Jesus, considering the events leading to her conception and the witness of the shepherds. And it's one of those things that you do kind of like, you know, Mary's pondering things and she's kind of, you know, she's maybe not being dramatic. And you kind of get the, the, the idea that she's not a dramatic person, but, you know, even as these things have been saying, she's kind of like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, all right. And you're like, you know, shepherds show up miraculously, you know, all right, obviously not the best of people, but they show up at your, you know, oh, you know, the Lord has told us to do this, and she gets visited by Gabriel, you know, and, you know, and I'm assuming at least some degree of splendor with that, you know, that somebody would come and tell her that she's going to, and, you know, but she's holding it down, and so maybe again, um, this is something about how we need to handle revelation. Maybe there's something in there that we need to really hold things down, that we don't really kind of start to believe our own hype, but she just kind of like takes it in her stride. And maybe we ought to do so. Um, and we don't have, you know, we're not looking, as it were, for, for, for spectacle all the time. But it is interesting that she, she kind of holds this down and she just pretty much goes on. But as I said, Jesus is much like Marmite, isn't it? You live and love him or hate him. There really is no sitting on the fence with Jesus, even though people try to create a middle line, you know, and that middle line basically being the good teacher, you know, uh, 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 an exempt, what we call the exemplar Christ, you know, someone who kind of shows us, gives us a great example of how to live righteously, you know, um, an ancient Mother Teresa, you know, an ancient Gandhi. You know, great teachings. Yeah, just, you know, don't hate your enemies and all the rest of it. Oh, we don't bother that, that stuff about son of God stuff. Yeah, we just, you know, just, just love your enemies. Be nice, be kind. And again, perpetuating the values that the culture currently values and obviously sidelining the ones it doesn't. But is that really what's going on? What it really comes down is to what he represents, I believe. What Jesus represents is a contrast to what you make of yourself and your need for God. So, the Marmite effect is not so much Jesus himself, but what he represents to the world. This is your only way of redemption. This is your only way to be saved. And so, obviously, this is a great bone of contention when everybody tries to speak of ecumenicalism, especially across different faiths, because the reality is, is that Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. So what are you going to do with that? Muhammad can't help you. Vishnu can't help you. Buddha can't help you. Jesus is not like these other so-called gods or holy people. He shows you that ultimately you can only be saved through him and not through your own efforts. And this is where the rub is. Is that Jesus brings a contrast. He is God's answer to your sins. giving you a preview of some of what's to come, obviously, in Luke. Let me read from Luke 5, 29 to 32, to kind of clarify this. And Levi made him, Levi being one of the, um, being Matthew, made him a great feast at his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and other reclining at table with them. 
And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well need, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So there's that picture of someone. I can only help somebody who realizes that they need help. He's not saying, again, this is really tongue-in-cheek. He's not saying that people who are righteous are really righteous. And again, this is something that maybe some theologians really need to kind of double down on. Jesus is being ironic when he says, I've not come for the righteous. It's amazing how sometimes people like to skip the genre and, and try to write in their own theology about what Jesus is saying. Everybody needs him. And we see this more clearly, obviously, as we go a little bit further into Luke's gospel, into chapter 18, and verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So again, these are those clarifying points. You've got to be wary, you've got to be wary of these tricky biblical theologians who like to go to one particular scripture and don't necessarily like to try and bring the whole of, of the gospel together. In other words, to allow the word to interpret it, the word. Rather, they want to sit in front of you and say, well, this is what it means. And then they don't bring the whole of God's scripture into, con in, into, in, into um, context. And so let Luke describe what he means by righteous rather than you filling Luke with your own ideas about what Luke thinks about righteousness. And so this is what Luke thinks about righteous people who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up their eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Luke, in his own words, says that the person who thinks they're righteous are not righteous. God doesn't hear their prayers. They, don't, they pray, but nothing has changed in their life. They are still in a need for God, because in a sense, their life hasn't fallen apart in a way that reveals that they really need God. And such it is where we find in our own lives, more times it's through crisis that we come to Christ. It's only as our lives fall apart that we suddenly realize we need help. When, our, when we've got a great job, when our relationships are great, we tend not to need God. Because in that sense, we have all that we think that we need. Again, to carry on with a little bit of systematics here, let's understand again through the context of what we're, we're seeing here in Romans 3, 9 to 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So through the, the word, and obviously so many more texts you can bring into line with that, we get that picture that actually Jesus has come for the whole world. The whole world needs him. But the dividing line is that those people who don't feel that they need him will fall at his witness. And those who realize that they do need him will rise through his witness, the rise and the fall of many. We'll dig a little bit more into that a little bit later. So if we are to be honest about what the Bible teaches us about human anthropology, then we need to be very humble to, in considering our potential for good without the help of God. You know, the Bible witnesses that it's not that when we, when, we, when we think about what it means for humans to be depraved, it doesn't mean that we are incapable of doing good things. Jesus himself says, you being fathers, you know, being evil, know how to do good. 
You know, none of you give your children, you know, a stone if they ask for bread. The reality is that we know how to do good. We have the, we have the light of God in us enough to know how to treat other people. And that's the truth of the matter. But the reality is that when we talk about doing good good, good from the heart, good in the complete context in which this world has been made, in other words, I am right with God and therefore I am right with my neighbor, that, 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 that vertical and that horizontal aspect, that is quite a different story. Most of us can do good to our neighbor while shaking our fist at God. And so at the surface, we, we see a good person. You know, oh, I trimmed your hedge for you today. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You know, I saw it needed a little bit of a trim, and I thought, let, let me go and hand that, you know, and I, you know, I know you're... Uh, and, and then he goes and picks up his Richard Dawkins' God Delusion book and goes, oh, this guy is so amazing. You know, doing good while shaking his fist at God. And that's the aspect that, that we can, we understand that is a good thing that he does, but it's not good from the point of righteousness. Maybe sometimes they're only doing it because your house looks bad, their house looks bad. <laughs> we know a thing or two about that. So this, this other part of Simeon's um, prophecy is the piercing of Mary. Now, there's many theories about that, but the one I like the most, and it's the only one I'll present because of time, is the piercing of Mary is very much like that picture of the mother who loses their first son. You know, that first son, that, that child that you have that is special to you, and especially within the ancient context, that would be the son that would, be, you know, would inherit and ultimately take care of you. And Simeon, I believe, is letting her know that Jesus will not be that for you. His ministry will take over where his care for the world will mean that he will not be that support for you in elderly age. And that actually you will see him suffer. The very piercing of his side will pierce her side. And you can almost imagine that as you think about as she has to watch the soldier pierce into the side of her son how that actually physically represents to mothers as well, how they physically feel that. And so what he experiences, she will experience as a mother. He will not be able to be the older son for her that many Jewish women would have expected. Jesus is called for something more. We're then introduced to Anna in chapters and verses 36 to 38. You know, again, considering that the purification and the redemption of the firstborn may have been happened at two different times, it's possible, as I said, that these are two separate events where Anna now is introduced but shown by the way it's presented as being in one event. So Anna gives thanks for the redemption of Israel, which may be an irony. You know, so maybe this is the point, the latter thing that happens at 40 days where um, they're paying for the redemption of Jesus. In other words, because every firstborn belonged to, to God, because that was God's blessing, God has opened your womb and has given you a child, that you paid God for your child back. And maybe the irony here is that as they're paying God for their child, their child is going to pay for them. You know, and again, it reminds us of that, um, that great Christmas carol. Mary, have you heard that the child that, you will, that will be born to you will, will pay the price for you? That we, in a sense, this is the one place in which, you know, not by mere virtue of you being older and your child being a little bit able, more capable, but your child really takes care of you. And even from birth, Jesus is taking care of them more than they realize they are taking care of him. He has a greater purpose than even their purpose as parents. 
So in verse 39 to 40, we have that transition now, that picture of Jesus now growing older. And this, again, is, is very remarkable, very similar to what we see in 1 Samuel, about Samuel himself growing in stature, growing in favor, that in a sense, his popularity, he becomes um, a picture of the perfect redemption, the perfect um, picture. With Samuel, it was the point of a corrupt priesthood through Eli. And again, no doubt through Jesus, the corruption of the temple system is being grown where you have, some, you have an alternative to turn to. You don't have to rely upon this, that all of a sudden now, as you'll see, even through the next section, that there, God is already providing an alternative. So for those who can't go to Eli and rely on Eli in Samuel's day, there was a Samuel that was growing in the wisdom of God, that they could turn to him. In other words, there was hope for the future. And so that's what that transition, I believe, may be alluding to, is that picture of there is now an alternative to that which is the temple system. So we come to the last section, the prodigy, so to speak. Jesus now when he's, he's 12 years old. So verses 41 to 45 talks about him being lost. You know, again, the going to the feast of the Passover once a year, every Israelite was Every Israelite male, at the very least, was told that they needed to be at the free feast, the free major feasts of the year. And the fact that Mary goes to the Passover speaks that maybe, again, this, is fa- this family is, is a little bit more religious than the average Jewish family. She goes as well, because obviously it's a long journey. And she's going with the whole family. And, and that's the picture that Jesus grew up in a, in a covenant-observing family. And we can't miss that. And they're being faithful to the covenant and being recalled, as being recalled here. But however, Jesus goes missing. Jesus is missing. Again, the fact that because of bandits being on the road, you know, our modern day bandits is those, um, those cafes and, and um, you know, rest stations on the, on the motorway that all of a sudden high cut prices. That's our modern-day bandits. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but in those days, you had real bandits, people who would jump out. And so people traveled in large caravans in order to protect themselves. And, um, and so it was quite obviously possible that Jesus is obviously traveling in a large caravan. Hence, it's possible to go missing. And it's not, again, one of those issues of child negligence um, that we might be all hot on. But Jesus goes missing because... He could very easily be amongst this huge group of people traveling back up to Galilee as they've just been um, to the festival. But Jesus is found in the temple. There he suggests to his parents um, is exactly where he should have been. You know, the fact that maybe they mentioned three days of looking and the only place they didn't look. uh, So we're maybe led to think that what they know about Jesus, where else would he be? He wouldn't be messing around in the streets. But he'd be in the temple. This is what he lives for. Maybe his own excitement about, you know, I'm looking forward to going to the temple today. Maybe even as he, as he saw that, um, that Passover feast nearing, his excitement growing about what's going to happen when we get down to there and how we might have seen the temple for the first time, maybe as a, as a young child, or maybe even this time, being the first time they get to go. But I think there's something, again, that, again, I need to probably want to expand on here, which is about the glory of God coming to his temple. Now, this is, again, another thing of prophecy that I feel we need to bring out. And, and I want to turn to Haggai um, 2, 1 to 9 here, and, and expand on this whole idea of what I believe is happening, even as Jesus enters the temple at this young age. And it says this, Haggai is at, is at the time where They've come back from the Persian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and they're now um, building the temple. They've rebuilt the temple, but obviously it's not as impressive as Solomon's temple anymore. So people are disappointed, and it shows in the text. But God gives them a promise that I think Jesus now obviously fulfills. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So that's the promise. The glory of the Lord. And again, I won't read, but you know, Exodus 2 to 21 and 22 speaks about when they came out of Egypt, that pillar of, of, of cloud and that fire of smoke by night that lit and guided the people of Israel. They had this great spectacle to look at. When, G, when Moses, in, in, in Exodus 33, 9 to 10, it speaks about how Moses, when he entered into the tabernacle of meeting, the tent of meeting, how the pillar of cloud came and descended upon the entrance of the tent, and the Lord will speak with Moses there. That picture of visual signs of God filling his temple, you know. Exodus 40, 34 to 38 also highlights this. But let me maybe, again, go to the last one where we see about the, um, the, the filling of the temple that maybe they were looking forward to. You know, Second Chronicles 7, 1 to 3, it says this. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house, the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You know, the, that glory and that picture of, of the pillar of smoke, the fire and the smokiness and the fact that people couldn't stand in that presence, you know, I have to be honest. Some of us prefer our God to be a little bit foggy. We kind of prefer the impersonal aspect of this presence of God, which we just sit down and we bow down. And it's, it's all very glamorous, as opposed to a thinking, speaking man who comes and now speaks the word of God in maybe ways that we don't like. Sometimes we have more reverence for that impersonal aspect of God's presence. But the reality is, is that the glory of God is now revealed in that he now inhabits his temple with a speaking, thinking young boy. And that is God's presence in the temple. And so this is, I believe, prophecy fulfilled. That they never witnessed this, this descending of God's presence the way that they had obviously witnessed it before. Now they actually just witnessed it in the presence of a person. Maybe an unimpressive person. If the, um, the, the, the Isaiah, the servant song is to be believed, we know that we would not be impressed with his, his, his presentation of himself. That we are actually saying, I actually would prefer the fog and the smoke. And that's why I say today, I believe that some of us do prefer that. We don't necessarily want the clear word of God being preached to us. We just want the kind of haziness of a great experience. The Lord is present with us in his word. And we should revere that because this house has been filled with the word of God even now. His, his presence here because these are his words to us. In verses um, 50 to 52, we got the close of the prologue. 
and the early years of Jesus. So now that's the end of, um, of, of to some extent, Luke's introduction to Jesus' early life and setting up, obviously, the gospel that's going to be revealed to the Jesus now in full-time ministry. You know, we're also left to guess here because Mar- you know, Mary is left marveling again and is in suspended disbelief about the things that she has witnessed about Jesus. Or maybe, you know, she's just caught off guard by events that are not part of the norm. She's just not caught off guard, that she has that uh, reserve about her. And again, maybe something that we need to emulate. What's worth note here is that he does submit himself to his parents, and Jesus keeps the fifth commandment, doesn't he? You know, it's interesting here that he doesn't hide behind one of his natures. One of the things that we know, again, this is a little bit of systematics for you and doctrine, is that Jesus is born with two natures, the nature of a man and the nature of God. And he doesn't hide behind the other nature, and he doesn't bark at his mum and says, I don't need to submit to you. I'm God. In other words, he performs the perfect submission of being, at least in one of his natures, subordinate to his mother. And as Joseph plays that role of his father. He doesn't, these things don't contradict each other either. It's not like, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, he genuinely submits. Even as he submits to the Father, he submits to Mary. So these are not things that are in contradiction when we try to think of the grand scheme of this whole idea of well, which nature is playing out here and obviously as some people like to debate. Both natures are at play all the time. He's not changing his mind and swipping around, now I'm going to be God, now I'm going to be this. He is a genuine man and genuine God. Again, we've got that picture of Jesus now growing in grace and being prepared to bring the gospel as that final picture of what we see of him. You know, Again, that, that counter-alternative. Remember, looking back to 1 Samuel, that, that yes, there is a corrupt priesthood in Eli, but there is someone that God is bringing up and maturing. There's hope for the future. Maybe, again, it's something like... Um, that picture of where maybe, again, if you're a football club, maybe a, a, a team you support, maybe it doesn't look glamorous right now, but there's a young player coming up, you know? I remember the days when, um, I mean, I'm a basketball guy, so I don't really know much about football, but I remember the days where they were talking about a young LeBron James and the potential of him being an impact. And there's that picture of that. There's 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 a future for the game because there's good young talent coming. And I think this is a picture of Jesus at a very early age showing there was an alternative. There is something coming that people couldn't wait to get hold of. How do we apply this? Well, I want to kind of home in on that theme of the fall and rise of many. How Jesus presents himself. You know, there's a popular mantra today which states that um, we all need to get on the right side of history, you know, on the current issue of concern. You know, the idea behind such a statement is that we need to get out of outdated ideas and practices in order to get in line with the trajectory of history. You know, so whether that be women's rights, trans rights, gays' rights, human rights, you know, there's that pressure from the culture that we need to be on the right side of history on these issues because we might find ourselves to be outdated, thinking that we are preserving the past, but all we're doing is burying ourselves in a history that no longer matters. And no doubt we've all come across that in some way or form. Last week we were looking at how Jesus is the center of history and the very point of it. And that the only reason why there is a history, I believe, is because Jesus was promised to be born. What is the point of continuing on a world where there was no hope of ever really getting back on track again, getting back to where God wanted it to be? So the promise of Jesus being born from the foundation of the earth 
is the guarantee that history, human history, is worth living. And worth living indeed. If we are to take this popular mantra and subvert it for the sake of the gospel, which I believe that even the Apostle Paul did, taking current popular mantras of his day and, and subverting it for the gospel, if I were to do that today, I, I would have to say we really need to let the world know that they need to be on the right side of the history in regards to Jesus. In this way, he will indeed be the rise and fall of many because there is no middle ground with him. We are a part of the old humanity rooted in Adam, destined to die, or the new humanity who is rooted in Christ and is destined to live. The trajectory of history has shown us that we are heading towards that world. And the world needs to know that they need to be on the right side of history too. Because when it really comes down to it, Jesus is the one that matters. Romans 5, 18 to 21 tells us this. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is it time for you to get on the right side of history or on the right side of Jesus? I leave that with you. Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.